Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long-term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with seasoned qual investor Ray McLeady, co-founder and CIO of Relative Sediment Technologies. We talked to Ray about his relative sediment approach to investing, which centers around the concept that the positions, flows, or attitudes of institutional investors can oftentimes be superior to individual investors, and relative sediment takes advantage of this in investing. Ray explains relative sediment, why he thinks it works, and how he builds investment strategies using this unique idea. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Relative Sediment Technologies, Ray Micheletti. Hi, Ray. Thank you very much for joining us today. Hi, Justin. Thank you for having me. One of the things that we like to do here is we like to have people on that are doing interesting, innovative things in the investment space. Um, That's always fun. But we also like to talk to new emerging ETF issuers. And fortunately for us, you're uh, right squarely in the middle of those two areas. So I think um, we're lucky and our audience is going to be lucky to um, hear about some of the stuff that you're working on. your firm, Relative Sediment Technologies, is doing some interesting work in taking the sediment from institutions and individuals and combining those methods um, into various outputs and investment strategies. Um, and that's kind of going to be the basis, I think, for a lot of the conversation today. So thanks, thanks for coming on with us. So this is a new area that we're learning about that you're putting out research on that, that you're working on. So just, I mean, if you could start at the beginning? Like what was the genesis for getting involved with looking at sentiment and what got you interested in it? Sure. So um, I started my career doing quantitative long short equity and then we had the quant blow up in August of 2007. So I kind of, I transitioned into short-term global macro. Uh, But about eight years ago, nine years ago in 2014, I was at a family office and they, they had, you know, a decent amount of money and they said, look, we just want to preserve our wealth. If the S&P 500 is up 25%, you don't have to be up 25%. But if it's down 25%, we don't want you to be down 25%. So come up with uh, time to us and allocation strategies that mitigate downside risk. That's pretty much what everybody wants, right? So I didn't know really where to begin. I didn't have much experience at all in time to us and allocation. So I started cycling through different ideas, value, momentum, cross-asset relationships. And then one day I was sitting at my desk and I looked at this pamphlet that I had saved from the mid 2000s. So this was 2014. I had a pamphlet from uh, Lehman Brothers research from about 2006. So I was looking through that and there was uh, a factor that they used. It was uh, Inigo Fraser Jenkins and uh, Ian Scott. And uh, the factor was how institutions were positioned in the commitments of traders report, the futures and options market relative to how retail traders were positioned. So I looked at that uh, factor and it was okay, but it wasn't really eye-popping. But I I really liked the concept of institutions versus individuals because just intuitively, it felt that institutions would outperform individuals over intermediate and long-term horizons. So I played around with it a little bit. I smoothed it out and all of a sudden it started to have more predictive power. And then I started adding other cross-asset relationships based on how they were positioned in the long duration bond, the 30 year bond, as well as in the 10 year bond. And when you put those, uh, that information together, all of a sudden you get a pretty strong predictive signal in equities. However, I didn't really realize what it was at the time. It was just one of another uh, two dozen factors that I had. Where it got really interesting was in uh, September of 2015, the market sold off. 
all of my indicators were bearish except for relative sentiment. I didn't think much of it. The market then rallied about 10% in a straight line in the next several weeks. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And, but I didn't, again, I didn't think much of it. In February of 2016, the market also sold on them. All of my indicators were negative except for relative sentiment. It was positive. The market rallied another 10% in a straight line. And I said, well, that's interesting. The two times where all of these indicators were bearish, but relative sentiment was bullish, the market had these strong rallies. So I went back and I looked. Every time the relative sentiment was positive, whenever momentum was negative, the market tended to have their best annualized returns. They had, they annualized 30% returns when relative sentiment was bullish and momentum was negative. But if momentum was negative and relative sentiment was also bearish, they annualized minus 20%. So there was like a 50 percentage point difference in markets annualized performance when momentum was negative based on whether or not institutions were buying the dip or if they were selling the dip. So that was when I said, okay, I really have to study this factor because it seems like there's a lot there. So that was a good two years after I had really kind of developed it initially. Well, what's interesting with that is you had this like at a sample test going kind of, and you saw these signals and you were smart enough to kind of say, let me investigate that. Because sometimes you might, someone might, I, I probably would overlook it. I'd just be like, oh, well, let's not go back. Let's just continue to run the model as it is. But you actually investigated it. And then what came out of all that is like what you're doing now, which is very cool. Well, I mean, it's not fun to be on the wrong side of a 10% rally in, you know, three weeks or four weeks. So it was one of those things where it was like, you know, necessities of other inventions. So that's what happened. I wanted to ask you, like, what are the ways, like, when I think about sentiment, I'm thinking about like the AAII investor survey or these surveys you see out there, uh, maybe social media analysis on, on news and positive negative mentions of companies. But what are some of the ways that you're actually measuring sentiment in your investment process? So in my investment process, I tend to use uh, survey-based sentiment which might not be the best because you could have flaws in the survey or yeah, I'm not sure how they're, you know, constructed. And I really don't delve into the details too much. I more or less take data at face value and you see if it's predictive. If it is, great. If it isn't, then move on because there's just so much data out there. But I use survey-based sentiment, but the main engine of what I do is how investors are positioned in the market. So uh, that data goes from the commitments of traders before it, it tells you how different ad investor classes are positioned in the futures of the options market. Um, I also use market implied sentiment, things like, um, you know, options pricing, you know, what people are willing to pay for puts versus willing to pay for calls, breadth data, such as, you know, how many stocks are above various moving averages. So all that I think is, are very good measures of sentiment. Uh, and as you mentioned, we have sort of social media sentiment. I looked into that uh, a few years ago. What was interesting about that was I was bombarded by a lot of vendors that wanted to sell, you know, that type of sentiment data. And if you look at them, they didn't seem to have anyone with the on staff that had the expertise to build those models. So I felt like they were probably buying them from a centralized source and then reselling them. Um, I didn't spend a ton of time with them. Well, the time I did spend, I didn't see anything that was earth shattering, but you know, I'm not the final word. Other people might have different opinions about that. You brought up the idea of positioning. And this sort of gets to something I was thinking about when we were preparing for this is we've had Ben Hunt on the podcast who sort of focuses on narrative. Um, and he sort of looked at narrative as a factor and how you can use that to be a predictive thing. You know, we had Andrew Beer who uses positioning to determine where to go. And then in the middle of those two concepts seems to be sentiment. So how do those relate to each other? I mean, I would think narrative kind of drives sentiment, which drives positioning. But I mean, how, how do you think about those three concepts together? 
Well, I do think that they're very tightly intertwined, and I do think that you're right about narrative driving sentiment, which drives positioning, uh, et cetera. I, I know that um, with relative sentiment, whenever I describe it to people, they ask why it works. And I say, well, I think there are three advantages that institutions have, those being uh, better information networks. So, for example, if you're the CEO of BlackRock, you probably have Jerome Powell on speed dial. You probably have an idea of what uh, the Fed is thinking. I know when I worked at, uh, it was a large hitch fund at the time in the 2000s, uh, we would have politicians come through. We would have lobbyists come through. We would have ex-Fed governors come through, you know, on a weekly basis. So the information that institutions have is much better than the it's, uh, information that retail traders have. Uh, secondly, institutions have better uh, human capital resources. They have MBAs, CFAs, PhDs by the thousands every year with new cutting edge shine. Uh, technology. And then lastly, with respect to narrative, institutions set the prevailing market narrative. So Goldman Sachs issues research reports, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, Barclays, they put our research reports, they go on CNBC, they go on Bloomberg, and they tell the retail trader what the retail trader should think about the market. Hey, we're going to work an hour recession. Things are really bearish in that retail gets very bearish. They sell, they do this, they exited their tech stocks at the end of December. Tech's up 12% since then. So, uh, you know, I, I do think institutions have the ability to set the narrative, and I think that hurts retail traders to do certain things, and then institutions end up exploiting them on, you know, downstream. So, yeah, it's interesting because Ben's work has kind of showed that, you know, when the narrative becomes mainstream with retail, like that's when you want to be selling the narrative. So, like you said, I mean, the institutions have been bringing the narrative out. When it gets to retail, they're probably on their way out. Absolutely. I, so, there was a book uh, in the 1960s called Stock Market Blueprints by a guy named Edward Jensen. It's out of print. It's, it's one of those books on Amazon that sells for hundreds of dollars because it's no longer in print. But in the first chapter, he taught, this is back in the 60s, he was talking about mass money institutions outwitting retail traders. And the point that he was making is that big institutions have so much money that they can't move their portfolio around, you know, in a dime. They have to scale into and scale out of positions. So... Institutions need good news to sell into. When retail rushes in on that good news, like they can't imagine things, you know, getting worse from here, that's when institutions sell. Whenever the news is very bad and institutions in retail can't imagine anything better in the future, that's when institutions are buying. And I think that we saw that last year because obviously things were very bearish last year, right? Um, but, you know, on the uh, mid-October, after the October release of the September CPI report when the market bottomed at 3491, um, institutions were kind of doubling down on their loan position. So they got long at the end of June. They rode the market up into August. They, they sold a little bit, but not a lot. They were still bullish on the way down to the October low. And then they piled back in at the October low. And now we're, you know, 600 points higher than the S&P. Whereas, you know, retail probably couldn't conceive of the market being at 4100 you know, in October at that point in time. So narrative, I think, is very important. And I think it does drive retail to do the wrong thing at the wrong time. Um, before we talk about relative sentiment, I want to talk about the two different types of sentiment individually. Um, there, there's kind of the, the narrative out there, and, and I think you're probably going to agree with this, but like that retail is pretty much always wrong. You know, when, whenever you see retail piling in a certain direction, you want to go in the other direction. So like on its own as an indicator, I mean, is, is retail a contrary indicator of what they're doing? Well, let me preface this by saying that uh, I don't want to come across as though I'm the total authority on this because I know there's probably very clever people out there that use this data in very interesting ways and come up with interesting signals. But from my experience, 
standalone sentiment, whether it's institutional standalone sentiment or retail standalone sentiment, doesn't tell you that much most of the time. Um, it's whenever you compare them, that's when you start to get the real interesting uh, signals. But to, to answer your question, uh, retail sentiment in equity. So if you look at the AAII, you know, I was doing that last night in preparation for this uh, talk. You know, sometimes when it's bearish, the market goes up. Sometimes when it's bearish, the market goes down. Sometimes when it's bullish, the market goes up. Sometimes it goes down. It doesn't have a lot of predictive power except around extreme levels. When it gets really extreme, then you might have a multi-day, multi-week trade. But then when sentiment resets itself, then you're left wondering, okay, now where does the market go? You don't have a signal anymore. So they're very episodic. And it's not something where, okay, I want to be long. No, I want to be short. No, I want to be long. No, I want to be short. It's very, you know, discreet in time. Um, that's with the AAII, but there is a group of retail sentiment indicators and I'm about to give away the story here, but the daily sentiment index put out by Jake Bernstein, a low time futures trader, and it, it has a small trader sentiment in different commodities, all the commodities you can think of as well as equities and bonds and currencies. But if you look at the retail trader sentiment in commodities, it has this interesting property. If it gets too hot. That suggests commodities have been going up, and that suggests inflationary pressure, and that tends to be a headwind for equities. If it gets too cold, that suggests deflation, slow growth, recession. That's not good for equities either. But if it's in this band in the middle, in this Goldilocks zone, it's very good for equities. It's very supportive. It's a tailwind. And so I find that to be very predictive of equity performance, but it's not equity sentiment. It's commodity sentiment. Retail commodity sentiment is very predictive of equity performance. If it's too hot or too cold, that's bad. If it's in this Goldilocks zone, it's really good. And we've been in that zone in January, although we're starting to plumb the upper ranges of that zone. So, you know, maybe we start to hear more talk about inflation uh, in the next few months. Interesting. So we've, uh, we've given our listeners a new, a new indicator they can go look at now. Um, how much does retail sentiment relate? I'm just curious, relate to market movement. So, I mean, as the market goes up, the retail traders always tend to get more bullish. Um, does, does, do they sort of move in the same direction always? Well, that's, that's also a very interesting question. I would think as a general rule that you can say that as the market goes up, retail tends to get more bullish. And as it goes down, they tend to get more bearish. However, it's not always the case. Take this month, January, right? Uh, if you look at the positioning in the NASDAQ between institutions and retail, as the NASDAQ has risen 10, 11% this month, institutions have been piling in, not speculators, not hedge funds like the Black Rocks, the pension funds, the endowments, they're piling into tech. And what's retail doing? It's selling tech hand over fist. So I think what we're seeing is that retail was burned in 2022 and they simply can't conceive of us having bottomed. So as the NASDAQ is rising, you would think they'd be getting more bullish, but in their positioning, they're getting more bearish. Conversely, you would think an institution would be selling into this. No, they're buying into this. So that's kind of why I think we might go higher than people expect here, to be honest. It's strange, I, whatever, but institutions are very, very bullish at the moment. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that, and that sort of gets to what you talked about already, which is this idea of relative sentiment. So I'm wondering if you could just maybe at, at a high level explain the idea of relative sentiment. Sure. So uh, relative sentiment is looking at the positions, the flows, and the attitudes of institutional investors relative to retail investors or compared to retail investors. So it could be how they're positioned. It could be how those positions are changing, or it could just be surveys. Uh, I do use some survey data from Centix, which is a German company that 
puts out a survey every week and they ask institutions certain questions, they ask individuals certain questions, and they come up with separate indices for both those industrial classes. Does, does rate of change matter? I'm wondering in, in sentiment, like do you, so if, if it's moving really, really quickly in one way or another, like relative sentiment, does, does that have any impact at all? Uh, so that's a great question. I've, I've looked into that and I think intuitively you think it would, right? You would think that if institutions are moving their positions in a certain way, that that would be whatever direction that is, that is, it's not always the case. Um, in fact, it's not the case. What I tend to find is it's, it's almost very binary. Um, if institutions are bullish and then that bullishness starts coming down, it's still bullish until it crosses over into bearishness. And then it's bearish until it crosses over into bullish. It's very binary, very level-driven uh, as opposed to um, changes. Although, let me kind of clarify that because the way I measure it is I don't measure it on an absolute basis. So for example, let's say that institutions are long 30 futures contracts and retail is short 30 futures contracts. So you might think, oh, okay, institutions are more bullish than retail. That might not be the case because maybe institutions are typically long 100 and retail is typically short 100, but now uh, institutions are only long 30 and retail is only short 30. So that is actually bullish relative sentiment. So in a way it is, it's not really the change, but it's the deviation from their typical positioning. And then you compare those deviations to each other. So it's essentially a Z-score. You take the Z-score of institutional positioning. So you, you subtract the, the mean and divide by the standard deviation. You do the same thing with the retail and then you compare those. And that gives you uh, basically, and then I subtract off the median, like what's the usual level of this? And if it's above the median, I say it's bullish. If it's below the median, I say it's bearish. Very simple. Not super complicated, but it's very powerful. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I hadn't heard that before. I mean, it's really, you not, need, not, don't not only need to know what they're doing, but you need to know what they normally do um, to, to be able to utilize this properly. Exactly. Exactly. Right. For example, for example, um, if you look at speculators of the dollar, speculators get the dollar right. They were short after the COVID panic. They were long in August 21, August of 21. They got bearish in mid-October of 22. So they basically called the dollar perfectly the last two years. And yet they're still net long the dollar in their futures basis, but they're much less net long than they were from August until October. And, and so that's uh, how I measure relative sentiment, uh, the deviation from how they typically are positioned. When we were preparing for this, I, I was sort of looking at your stuff and I'm thinking like, this is actually a factor. Like we could sort of analyze this in the same way we analyze value and momentum and some of the other stuff we look at. So I wanted to maybe, we, we had Andy Birkin on recently who wrote The Complete Guide to Factor Investing. And in that book he, that he wrote with Larry Swedro, they have this, you know, all these P's of, of uh, evaluating whether something is a factor. And so I wanted to maybe go through each one of them individually and maybe have you look at it through that lens and say, and talk about how, what you think about relative sentiment through that. And so, and so the first one is persistence, which is, does the factor historically deliver reliably reasonable returns? I would say yes. If you look at the last 30 to 40 years of uh, research, uh, the literature, you see that they, a lot of people have looked at institutional performance and individual performance in the same data set. So whether it's IPOs, whether it's secondary issuances, whether it's intra-quarter trading, uh, what have you, institutions almost invariably tend to have better performance than individuals. And I think that persistence is related to those three points I mentioned earlier, better information 
better human capital. And uh, they set the narrative. So I do think it is persistent. And I think that that's something that people would intuitively say, hey, do you think retail can consistently help perform institutions with all these embedded advantages that institutions have? I think people would say, but I will say that institutions don't always win. It's like a, a casino. If the slot machine doesn't pay out ever, no one's going to get to the casino. So the small trader has to win occasionally just to keep them around so that the institutions can exploit them over the world. Yeah, that makes sense. How about pervasiveness? Does it work in different geographies and across different asset classes? It does. So I've looked at it in Europe, Japan, Asia, X Japan, and it's worked uh, almost the same way in each of those regions. And it works for other asset classes other than equities as well. And it works for different data sets within those different asset classes. So I think it is pervasive. How about robustness? Um, can you formulate it in different ways and use different indicators and it still works? Yes. So to what I just said, you can look at different data sets and those come up with different indicators and it still works, but more so within each of those data sets. So I don't like to use one set of parameters. I don't want to be wholly reliant on one set of parameters in case those parameters stop working. So I look at a whole range of parameters uh, for my different uh, relative sentiment indicators. And you can move those parameters by a wide margin and uh, it doesn't have very much effect on the outcome. So yes, it's very robust. And how about intuitiveness? Uh, does it make sense that it should work? Well, I think, uh, let me ask you, if, if given the choice to bet the direction in institutions or individuals, which way would you bet? Yeah, I think I'm going with the institutions. Okay, so I think it's intuitive. <laughs> And I want, I want to ask you about the last one, investability, because obviously you're, you're investing in highly liquid things. So clear, clearly it's something that is investable. Yes. I will say, I, I, we might, you might want to talk about this later, but I do think, so I'm, I'm a, employing relative sentiment in a longitudinal sense uh, in different asset classes. It, but I think it can also be, um, well, I do do some cross-sectional work, but only with regions. So I line up the US, Japan, Euro, and Asia, X, Japan and uh, see which has higher relative sentiment, and that tends to predict their relative returns. But I do think that you can also use it for individual stocks. So there was a paper many years ago that talked about the, the TAQ data from the, the NASDAQ. I'm not here from really nicely. I think that's the trading quote data. I'm not entirely sure. But they used this data, which had information about all the trades, and they were able to separate institutional trades from retail trades. And it's my feeling, it's my conjecture that if you use that data and you create relative sentiment uh, measures for each stock, and then you can rank those and find the stocks that institutions are buying the most relative to retail and the ones they're selling the most relative to retail. And I think that would be a factor that would rival or dominate value, momentum, quality, low volatility, et cetera, because I think how people are positioned is a more primal characteristic of an asset than value or momentum or, or things of that nature. I know that's probably controversial, but no one's really looked into that extensively yet though. I don't think anyone has, but if anyone has that data and wants to do a Julie project, I'd love to, uh, to look into that with you. Is it, is it like readily available data or is it pretty, do you think it's pretty hard to come by? Well, no, it'd be the nicey sells and it's just a little bit on the pricey side. Uh, yeah. And I would think, you know, I would think also that that factor would probably, you know, the excess returns of that factor probably wouldn't be very correlated with the excess returns of the other factors. So it, it might be a really good diversifier. I, I think that you're right there. I think that what we would find is of the top echelon of relative sentiment, you would have stocks 
across the spectrum, you'd have high value stocks, low value stocks, high momentum, low momentum. So I, I do think that it might be somewhat uncorrelated with those other factors. And I just ask one question here as a point of clarification. I think our audience, when you, how would you, so would you go like in that example, would you go long the stocks that institutions are more favorable on and short the stocks that retail investors are like, how would that, because I mean, we're going to talk about how you actually incorporate this in your investment strategy, but I'm just wondering using that data set, what would be the like buy sell triggers with that? So what I would do is I would come up, I would find a metric that measured relative sentiment. So if we have the dollar amount that institutions are trading and the dollar amount that retail is trading, I would see how that dollar relative compares to what institutions typically buy for that stock. And basically a Z-score again and compare those two and then just rank the cross-section and take the top decile, decile and go long, left decile and go short. Just like you're doing value or momentum or quality or any other factor, I would treat it that way. If you can come up with a stock-specific measure of relevance. Going back to your, to your overall strategy, I know besides equities, you have some other asset classes that you, you have within sort of your ETF strategy. Um, can, can you just talk about what else you use there? Sure. So when designing this, so essentially it's uh, an equities bond and gold fund. So it, uh, you can kind of think of it as a dynamic 60-40 that also... Uh, invest in gold as well whenever relative sentiment is favorable for gold. Now, bonds, uh, I do have models to select within bonds, nominal versus inflation. The bonds are sort of like, I, I essentially look at equities. How much do I want in equities? How much do I want in gold? And whatever's left over goes to bonds. Um, so bonds, I don't really apply relative sentiment to bonds. They're sort of like the, the ballast fills up the rest of the portfolio after applying relative sentiment to the other assets. And how do you think about, I mean, do you have bands around how much you could own of each asset class? I mean, would you be 100% equities if relative sentiment told you to be? Uh, yes, I would be. No, I use four different relative sentiment factors. And it's rare for those to be over 90%. So in theory, I would be 100 if it ever got to that level, but it's rare for it to be over 90. Although I will say right now it's at 94%, 95%. So it's, it's, it's one of those rare extreme levels of bullishness. So I, I don't have bands. I do have bands on gold. Gold, for re reasons, uh, regulatory reasons, you can't have more than 25% of your portfolio in gold. Otherwise, your categorization becomes different and what have you. So I limit gold to between 20 and 25% if it's in there. But sometimes it's in there at only 10%, 5%, but 20 to 25 would be the max. Just one more for me before I hand it back to Justin. I wanted to ask you about, you know, one of the things I think would be interesting when you're applying relative sentiment is what if they're the same? So, you know, what if retail institutional sentiment is kind of identical? Like, how do you think about that case? Well, um, in that case, well, first of all, one is always going to be slightly more than the other, especially if you're looking at the futures market because it's a zero sum game. So someone has to be long, someone has to be short. But in surveys, it's theoretically possible where they could be the same. Uh, the survey-based stuff that I use, I, I kind of run that through some machine learning algorithms. Big ensemble of them, they average the results. So I don't really know what it does in in the you know in the inner workings of that if it actually is at zero. But in typically, you're looking at these relative to one another. So it's rare that they're exactly the same. That they're like really at a standoff. One tends to be leaning one way versus the other. Now it could be at a very small band around neutral. In which case, I'd simply just follow the sign. If it's slightly positive. 
that would be slightly bullish and slightly negative. That would be slightly negative, but it wouldn't be a hundred percent and minus one hundred percent. It would be uh, a gradient. So my relative sentiment ranges between zero and one hundred percent. If that were the situation, it would probably be around 50, 50, 55, 45 in there. there. How, how does it work uh, when you're looking at international versus U.S. relative sentiment? Like, are they, you had kind of mentioned you're using surveys. Are they, are they similar indicators, slightly different indicators? Do you find that is the U.S. maybe a little bit more predictive because there's more data or what are your findings there? Well, I do think the U.S. has better data. I think that uh, I I have looked into whether or not they have that type of commitment to traders report in Europe. And I think they do. But when I go to websites, I can't quite figure out how to access the data. So I kind of haven't really perceived that. But the Centix data does have clear data for Europe, Japan, Asia, Japan. And what I do there is I come up with relative sentiment measures for each of those regions. And then I rank them. And if you look at the subsequent performance of the top ranked second ranked, third ranked, and fourth ranked region, it tends to be uh, relative to those rankings. So the first ranked region through time tends to outperform the last ranked region, the second tends to outperform third, et cetera. Uh, so what I do then is I say, okay, well, if I'm kind of uh, figure out how to divide my equity allocation between the U.S. and non-U.S., and look at that Centix relative sentiment and take the U.S. divided by the U.S. plus some weighted combination of Europe and Japan, um, and then I take that weighted combination of Europe and Japan divided by the total or just one minus whatever the U.S. proportion is. But yeah, I just kind of look at it proportionally to the relative sentiment. So for example, so if U.S. relative sentiment was 40% uh, and developed was 60%, then my U.S. would be broken down into 40 and 60, very simply. What's nice about that though is, you know, at some point, you know, international markets you know, are likely to outperform U.S. markets. So you have this like disciplined, you know, embedded system in your strategy where when that starts to take place and institutions start to recognize that, you know, you have your strategy can sort of flow up more into international versus U.S., which, which would be good for your investors at some point. Knock on the And Yes, that's, that's the thought. That's why we included uh, non-U.S. equities because when we were designing this in late 2021, expected returns for the U.S. were so paltry uh, over the next decade in Europe and Asia had much better valuation. So we thought we have to include international stocks just to capture some of that you know, better return potential. You had mentioned that you do hold gold in the portfolio. And I think I was reading on your site um, that you use relative dollar sediment um, and you use that as a sort of, as a guide, or I guess a signal on the trajectory of interest rates um, to determine actually your exposure to gold. So is that something you can just talk to? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so I, it's another thing that I kind of still would have just kind of looking at relative sentiment in the gold space. And it seems like, so gold's very frustrating. I don't know if you guys deal with precious metals at all, but very, very frustrating. Um, but one thing that I found is that there are two macro conditions that are very favorable. One is it's a, it's a compound condition. That is if dollar relative sentiment is bearish and real rates have negative momentum. Now, as I mentioned earlier, speculators are really good in coloring the direction of the dollar. And when the dollar goes down, that tends to be good for gold. 
But also when the dollar goes down, that tends to be good for real rates. So when dollar relative sentiment is bearish, real rates tend to go down. When dollar relative sentiment is bullish, real rates tend to rise. Uh, so the combination of negative momentum in real rates and bearish dollar relative sentiment is very bullish for gold. The other comment, the other condition that's very bullish for gold is when equity relative sentiment is bearish. And why is that? Well, there was a paper put out uh, probably uh, more than a decade ago by Fougere and Van Erla, and they talk about uh, gold being a release valve such that whenever equities are doing poorly, investors could still capture some real return by piling in the gold. So gold is thought of as a safe haven asset. Their, their contention was that it provided investors a real return in periods when equities are doing poorly. And so I tested that. And sure enough, when equity relative symptom is bearish, which tends to lead to sideways or down equity markets, gold tends to do well. So we invest in gold either when equities are in a bearish regime or when the dollar is uh, dollar relative symptom is bearish and real rates are negative. Not negative, but falling. Okay. Did you ever, or have you looked at any, um, incorporating any other types of commodities into the strategy? Well, you know, I hadn't looked at commodities uh, really with any, you know, vigor until this year in term in uh, relative sentiment framework other than gold. And uh, so we didn't really think about that when we designed the fund, but there does seem to be a lot of relative sentiment relationships in commodities as well. For example, when, so I, I kind of look at different liquidity related assets, such as like the two-year bond, various currencies, you know, Fed funds, futures, the euro dollar futures. So if you look at how investors are positioned in liquidity related assets and how they're positioned in growth related assets, such as oil, natural gas, things that you would expect to do well if the economy is growing. And you can kind of get like those quadrants, you know, people with growth and inflation. So I look at relative sentiment growth and relative sentiment liquidity. And uh, when you do that, uh, you, there's a lot of predictive power for copper, for oil, for natural gas. Now, the problem with incorporating those into, say, an ETF is that those ETF, underlying ETFs have very high management fees. So you're kind of adding you know, a lot of expenses there. But it would be a small position. So that might offset it if returns justify it. So I would definitely consider that in the future. And I'm also, you know, after 2022 and how, you know, the dollar was bullish for much of the year and everything else was going nowhere or down, but dollar relative sentiment is very predictive of the dollar to have a dollar based ETF uh, whenever dollar relative sentiment is bullish to, to give you another dimension to capture potential risk off dynamics. So in the ETF wrapper, we have U.S. stocks, developed international gold, and the last one is bonds. And I think with this, you're using retail relative sentiment and to indicate inflation or give you a signal on inflation expectations. And then you're allocating between nominal bonds and tips. Do I have that right? That is correct. So this, uh, what I do there is I look at uh, the daily sentiment indices for commodities and then I find the ones that are most highly correlated with break-even inflation. So I take the top several that are most correlated with break-even inflation and I look at whether sentiment is bullish or bearish in those indices. If it's bullish, I'll give a point to Tim's. If it's bearish, I'll give a point to nominal bonds. I add up all the points and then I just allocate based on the proportion of those points in each of the tips of the nominal bonds. So essentially, 
riding the retail sentiment uh, in inflationary types of commodities, things that are very highly correlated with inflation. So if everyone's retail is very bearish in the assets that are highly correlated with inflation, I'd be mostly involved in the nominal line. So yeah, whereas if they're, if, you know, they're very bullish in the indices that are highly um, correlated with inflation, then I'd be more towards tennis. So what is the, what is the relative to the 60-40? So the 60-40 has like a return um, over the last, how far back does this go? Yeah, I don't know, over the last like 40 years, 35 years, it's something like an 8.5% return with a standard deviation of 9.6. That's probably, you know, higher than it's going to be in the next 20 years, just given where valuations are and given where rates are. But let's say, you know, that's the numbers we have. So a strategy like yours, that's an alternative to something like the 60-40, how would, I know you can't, I'm just wondering the return profile, like what might you, how might you describe the return stream that an investor might get based on the testing you've done of this type of strategy? Sure. Um, so first I'll say that if you take the time-weighted average equity allocation of the relative sentiment factor that we have, the relative sentiment composite indicator, it's 61%. So over time, this on average is like a 60-40. So it's 61% equities, 34% bonds, 5% bond on average over a 30, 40 year period. Actually, I think since late 1980, so about 35 year period. Now over that time, the annualized return is somewhere has been somewhere in the realm of about 12%. So a few hundred basis points higher on an annualized basis than uh, a 60-40. And that's, I believe, because it ramps up its allocations after the market has sold off and the market has only gone up, right? So if you're getting more along the equity market every time the market has fallen in the past and the market's rising, you're going to do better. And then it also sells as the market goes out. And it kind of uh, is able to mitigate the downs. And see, institutions are very good in, in, at anticipating the downside. Uh, I'll give you an example where they anticipated really well and then got blindsided. So in August of 2018, institutions got bearish on equities. And then the market peaked in late September of 2018. And then Powell said, hey, we're nowhere near neutral because they were raising rates. And then the market sold off 20% into the fourth quarter of 2018 and institutions had a relative sentiment value of 7%. So they were 7% equities in December of 2018 as the market fell. But then in January, after, well, it, it bottomed on Christmas Eve, Mnuchin called the big banks and then Powell pivoted and institutions caught off guard by that. And then the market started rallying in January and it took the institution several weeks to get back on the right side. Of the but they do anticipate the sell-offs better than retail does. So they, they basically lighten up as the market rises, they get longer as the market falls, and over time that adds, you know, basis points to the return. Have you done any research around combining this with other investing factors or something like trend following to? Yes, yes. And so uh, they tend to have a very complementary nature. So going back to the very beginning of our discussion where I mentioned how I so all this red on my screen, except for the relative sentiment indicators that were green, and noticed that twice, and then went back and saw that when momentum was negative, the relative sentiment was positive, the market tended to do well. It, it kind of led me to the idea that maybe trend following and relative sentiment were complementary in the sense that 
trend following is a great strategy, right? I mean, it's time tested. A lot of people have made amazing fortunes from trend following. I have nothing but uh, total you know, esteem and respect for trend following, but it does have two weaknesses. One is that, and if we're talking about a canonical trend following strategy where you're long, if it's above a moving average and flat, if it's uh, below a moving average. So if the market goes above a moving average and then starts to fall, you're going to stay in the market until it goes below that moving average. So you stay in the market too long after it's peaked. And likewise, when you're out of the market and then it troughs and it starts to rise, you still stay out, even though the market's rising until it crosses back above your signal line. So that, those are the two main weaknesses of trend following, whereas relative sentiment does the exact opposite of that. So at market peaks, relative sentiment tends to have an allocation of only 50% to equities. At market troughs, it ups up that allocation to about 60% equities. And then by about eight weeks past the trough, it's at 70% equities. Meanwhile, at the peak, trend following is at 100%, so it captures more of that drawdown. And then at the bottom, it's at zero, and it takes it a long time to get away from zero. So during drawdown periods, relative sentiment buffers the returns of trend following, which sells low and buy and high. But outside of drawdown periods, when trend following is 100% allocated to equities and there are no drawdowns, that's where you want to be. And that buffers the weakness of, of relative sentiment. So put together, they kind of complement each other in a very nice way. We talked about using uh, relative sentiment at a high level with asset classes, and we talked about it using it for stocks as well. I'm wondering in the middle, have you seen a, any work done around using it for sectors? I mean, it seems like it might make sense as like a sector allocation strategy. Yes, I think that um, I think very much it could be used for sectors simply because if you look at if that framework that I mentioned a few minutes ago, where you kind of have relative sentiment growth and relative sentiment liquidity, uh, you can use that for sectors. Now, the trick is to find the right liquidity metrics for each sector. For example, uh, the tech sector likes weak dollar uh, because a weak dollar means um, higher overseas earnings. It also means lower real rates. So if you're looking at a tech valuation model, higher earnings from the weaker dollar plus lower real rates, your discount rate is gonna be lower. So your valuation is going to be higher. So tech likes that. In contrast, the financial sector, it likes a positive dollar because a positive dollar means higher real rates. It means higher net interest margin. So there are a lot of relative sentiment relationships you can use just from the Kubis of Traders report. But also I do think, I have a looked into it, but I do think there are companies that have sector flows and you could probably find a lot of interesting uh, relative sentiment data within that, that type of uh, those data sets as well. So I do, I, I do think it can be used for sectors. So you think the idea was, is you would probably use different indicators for each sector in this case, rather than trying to use something overall. Yes. So what I find is that the growth indicators tend to be constant. So the growth, it doesn't matter what sector you're looking at, they all like the same growth indicators, but they like different liquidity type indicators. Uh, but it's not necessarily one for each sector. Sometimes you can group the sectors. Uh, so like you know, energy and materials and industrials tend to have the same sensitivity on the liquidity scale. And then tech and consumer discretionary. Consumer discretionary is essentially Amazon and Amazon is essentially a tech company. So they all like that. Uh, so you can kind of group the sectors. It's not necessarily totally sector specific, sector specific. It, it kind of uh, bunches of them essentially grouping that I trying. Um, have you seen any like new tabs thinking like this chat GPT, but that's, you know, I don't know, like this, 
this um, these developments in AI and natural language processing and machine learning and you know different ways I guess that you could be measuring this kind of uh, you know investor sentiment in the market. Do you do you are you are you looking at any of that in your process? Are you seeing any interesting stuff out there? Oh. Well, that's a great question. Um, I am not seeing any interesting stuff out there only because I'm not really looking. I did to be a little bit of a recluse and kind of in my own little, you know, shell here, but, uh, I'm sure there are people doing some very interesting things. And, you know, I do use machine learning for one of my signals, not all of them, but one of them. And, uh, none seems to do well. And it's a very simple implementation of machine learning. So I'm sure there are, you know, are ways that you can do it in a much more complex, nuanced way that can, can lead to uh, good results. And I think the underlying reason I believe that is because I don't think that if you have something that's not predictive of markets, that you could throw that into some type of AI engine or machine learning engine and come out with something that's predictive if there's no relationship there to begin with. Whereas I think there's a very strong relationship between how investors are positioned you know, as some work, it's moved. So using some type of advanced AI or machine learning could probably come up with some interesting relationships that you might not be able to find with simple. So I do think a lot can be done there. I haven't really done it, but I, I do believe that simply because of the relationship between positioning and working with. So we like to ask all of our guests a sort of standard closing question. Um, and you can go anywhere you want with it, but based on your research and experience in the markets, if you could impart or teach one lesson to uh, the average investor, what would that be? I've learned a lot of lessons in the last couple of decades, but I think uh, one that I would say is uh, turn not see it. Don't listen to what the institutions say. Don't read their research reports. Find some systematic rules-based strategies that are complementary to each other. Put them in a portfolio and then go live your life and don't worry about it. Um, but don't get caught up in, in what the news is because the news gets you to do the wrong thing at the wrong time almost all the time. So I would say you would be doing yourself a favor and your portfolio a favor by turning off the news, CNBC, Bloomberg, Fox Business, and don't read the uh, institution's research reports. Find some systematic strategies and then you'll be fine. Well, I'm going to take that advice right now. If you see that TV in the background, I'm turning it off. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, thank you very, very much. This is, uh, this has been great. I've learned a lot. I think I have a lot more to learn, um, but it's going to be good to follow your research, your development, the ETF growth, and we wish you all the best. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much, guys. It was a pleasure. We appreciate it. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube, or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate